The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. I'm going to read a little bit of the Bible printed inside your program on the left. Uh, the topic, Wondering About Wonder, Christmas and Dawkins. And I'm going to read just the first two paragraphs printed on the left, and then we invite Ian to speak. And the usual uh, opportunity for you to pose questions, comments, either by SMS or scribbling on the bits of paper in your program. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, uh, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as one of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See if this sucker works. Mm-hmm. Is there somewhere the brain want to push this? Well, that's my talk. Did you have any questions? Okay. Okay. By coincidence, uh, some years ago I was I was down in Canberra. And coming back, at, I was at the airport, and um, there was a whole lot of people, it was a Sunday morning, there was a whole lot of people um, drinking coffee and reading the newspaper, which was basically the same story. Let's try it again, eh? That'll do. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, newspapers are basically the same cast of criminals just doing different things, and um, you know, a disaster here, a catastrophe there, a fib there. And, um, but there was a group of children right near the windows, and every time you'd see a plane go up, they'd go, Ah! Ah, and they'd point, and, they'd go, and then they'd calm down, and we'd all look up from our papers looking bored and have, drinking our bad coffee that cost us $7 a, a glass at the airport. And then uh, another plane would go, and they'd go, ah, ah, and I thought, and I remember thinking, they're the only people who see what's going on. We just, I mean, to get in a plane, every time I go on a plane, I always ask for the window seat. I mean, what is the point of being in those suckers if you can't look at the clouds and the view? But it's, I just thought those children, although they would be, um, you know, they had special needs, etc., it just seemed to me they were the only ones who saw what was happening. The absolute wonder of the fact we can jump in these things and fly. I mean, and then we whine about things, you know, that didn't work, my entertainment system didn't work, etc. One of the world's great cellists from the last century said, this beauty is all about us, but how many of us are blind to it? We look at the wonders of this earth and seem to see nothing. And at one level, the world is an absolutely day-by-day wonderful thing. Uh, the great um, North African philosopher and Christian thinker from the 4th century says people travel the earth to, to wonder at great mountains. They travel great distances to see the great oceans. They travel great distances to see wonderful rivers, he said, but they walk past themselves the greatest wonder that they will ever encounter. And this idea of wonder and the loss of it 
and how to keep enjoying things as wonderful as they are is one of the great challenges of life. When I moved to North Sydney and worked in a, a school there, a boys' school, and we used to walk down the side of the chapel past the synthetic heaven that they had of all these roses and green grass, extraordinary, down towards our house beside the two swimming pools. You need not one but two swimming pools. I used to say to the girls, the daughters, we will never, ever live in a place as beautiful as this. You've got to not take this for granted. So I tried to make it a little ritual that as I walked over beside the chapel, beside the synthetic heaven, down beside the two pools, down to a beautiful house, looking at the harbour, and to thank God for it. To not begin to take for granted the wonderful. Now the word wonder, which has come up really partly because of um, uh, the great Professor Dawkins being in town, his, his book, his uh, autobiography, uh, The First of Two Halves, is called An Appetite for Wonder. And uh, Christmas is a wonderful time in all its senses. So I thought, just a quick question of definition, there are at least three or four different ways that we use the word wonder. One is to go, why? I wonder why that happens. It's, it's a, you know, so there used to be a TV program when I was a kid, uh, Professor Julia Sumner Miller, who was this eccentric uh, scientist. He, he would say, why is it so? And uh, I just remember the tin can with a candle in it, the air pressure and stuff. And they had this terrific, why is it so? And that became part of our family discussions at times. Why? And so you wonder about something. Uh, when dealing with the politics, sometimes you wonder if the promise is true. So that's using wonder a different way. It's saying, I, I doubt that. I'm not really convinced that that's the case. So wonder can just mean a curiosity. Wonder can mean I doubt it. Or wonder can mean that thing where you've seen something that is extremely big or extremely small or extremely exquisite or extremely beautiful and you go into the psychological state of wonder. It's kind of like astonished amazement, normally with a sense of admiration. Sometimes, sadly, you have a sense of wonder at something being so revolting. But normally wonder is a positive thing. As an old man I used to uh, like listening to says, my flabber is gasted. In these things. It's being, being, being flabbergasted. It's the opposite of being bored. So those kids, they just, ah, the, the sheer wonder at watching something fly and that they were about to get in one of those things where the rest of us were bored. They were amazed at this, 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 this astonishing fact that they were going to fly. Now, wonder is both the mother and the child of modern science as well. Wonder comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. All sorts of things can trigger. That's a, oh, it's a sense of... This is too big. It doesn't fit in my ordinary world when I take it on. So, in a sense, science grows out of the first two wonders and, in its best moment, concludes in the third. Although, sometimes people, even the great philosopher like Wittgenstein, thought that actually science can destroy wonder because when you unravel the rainbow, to use Keats' view, you kind of lose just the sheer beauty of it as you understand how light works. I don't see that that should be the case at all, frankly. But the first two sorts of wonder, I wonder why that happens, and is that really true? Uh, that's kind of the engine room of science, and then often it finishes with a sense of wonder, a sense of, and, and Dawkins himself says this, the feeling of awed wonder that science can give us is one of the highest experiences of which the human psyche is capable, and I think he's right. A lot of what we discover in science, part of the joy of it and the wonder of it, is it just makes you, wow, who'd have thought it was that big? Who'd have thought it was that brilliant, that clever? So you've got behind you a picture of stars. That's stars, not just specks of light. And um, you know, back in Psalm 8, which King David wrote about in the 7th century before Jesus, there's a very strong sense of the, the size of the universe 
And what is man that we should be considered consigned? The, one of the marks of some ignorant people is that it was only recently that we got some idea that the universe was big. That's baloney. Uh, Psalm 8 sitting there is a great testament. In fact, people understood it was vast. Now, we can put numbers on it now, but the numbers are so big they're almost meaningless. So, for example, the number of stars, as far as the, the leading edge of modern science, the number of stars that are in the universe, most of which are invisible to us, is... It's, the, the number they call it is the septillion stars. See, doesn't that inform you? Aren't you a wiser person? Because you now know there's roughly septillion... That is, there's 10 with 24 noughts after it, stars, that we know of. Um, the Milky Way, that only 100 years ago we thought was basically all there was, is, um, has got about 300 billion stars. That's a lot of stars. So there's about 7 billion human beings. So it's, you know... 45 times that amount. It's a lot. That's a lot of stars. But now we know that there's 100 billion galaxies. Now, there may be more. There's 100 billion Milky Ways out there, many of them bigger than the Milky Way. Septillion stars. So we now know, for example, if you get all the sand on Bondi Beach, there's more stars than there are grains of sand on Bondi Beach. But actually, that's not what science teaches us at all. Scientists have worked out, astronomers have worked out, that if you get all the sand on Bondi and Marubra and Manly and on all the beaches in Peru and all the beaches in, in Brazil and on all the beaches, there aren't any beaches in Europe, but there aren't any of the, and all the sand in the Sahara Desert and all that sort of stuff, right? you get all the sand on the planet and there's many billions of more stars than there are sand on the planet. And you know how energetic the stars are. I mean, the sun's not even a big star, but if it turned up in this room, we're dead. It's, it's vast. And when you get some sort of insight to that, it is, it causes you to go, wow. I mean, it just doesn't compute. Our little laptop brains, we, we just need a massive NASA-sized mainframe to get close to understanding the size of the universe that we inhabit. Now, very often, and I was watching some programs yesterday about this, very often people will say, you see how small and insignificant you are. And you're nothing. And that's, true. And that used to be the argument of people like Dawkins. He, he's changed the tune, I think, because in the end, it's too barren and dry. If you're trying to convince people to embrace a worldview, it's got to have something romantic and something beautiful. So the tone has changed, but those facts remain the same. So here's a picture of one of my favourite creatures. I hope. There he is. You won't see those in your backyard. They're, they're right up in the far north um, of Canada and Alaska. It's called the woolly bear caterpillar. I was watching a Richard Attenborough program. I'd love to sort of stop and have a wee down of time. It is, these, things are, these things can do stuff we cannot get within a million years of. So little energy is in the plants up there because there's so little sunlight that they can't, these guys can't eat enough energy to turn themselves into a moth and do their thing that caterpillars do. So at the end of the summer, they eat, they eat frantically all day, all night, for months. As soon as the summer, they crawl under a rock and they get, they get frozen basically to death. Attenborough says it's a miracle because they go under this rock, they're totally frozen, they stop breathing, there's no brain, there's nothing. Every mark is the fact that they're dead. As soon as the spring comes up, they thaw out and out they come. Now, the chemicals that they must release that keep them from not tearing their thing, and they do this for, I think it's 11 or 14 years, I've forgotten now, of eating, dying, coming back, eating, 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 sleeping, dying, whatever you call it. Everything, they're frozen solid. Nothing seems to be working. But out they come. 
And on the 11th or the 14th year, whatever the year it is, I'm sorry, I've lost the detail, they, they build a cocoon for themselves perfectly, first time every time. I've never done anything perfectly, let alone first time build a cocoon. They do it. They release another set of chemicals that turn them into fluid, this slushy stuff, and then out of it comes a moth. They eat their way out of this thing. They fly first time, they get it right. They fly. They find a mate, they find a celebrant, they get married, they have children, they die. Right? Now, Richard Attenborough rightly in, in, in what seems miraculous, and it is, it is amazing. It is wonderful. Whether you're an atheist, a polytheist, a, whatever you are, you can't but look at these things and go, wow, that is fantastic. Um, then we have people like Francis Crick, one of the great geniuses who worked out the DNA, the, the, um, the thing that, that sort of map that makes us nanotechnology at its extremely best. And he says this about all of our experiences of wonder and things like that. Because he's a thoroughgoing, consistent atheist, he says this, a person's mental activities are entirely due to the behaviour of nerve cells, of atoms, ions and molecules that make them up and influence them. Elsewhere he says this, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. So when you have a sense of wonder and beauty, it's about as meaningful as those times when I used to stick little pins into various parts of dead frogs and then the little legs, and I used to do that in the science laboratory. You'd stick a pin in the right place, that leg would go like that. Your experience of wonder, ultimately, if you're clear-thinking and hard-headed, is as significant as that. It's just, it's just a physical reaction. That's all it is. It's just... Because that's all we are in the end. As, as he says, all of our emotion, our personal identity, are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells. And ultimately, as he goes on, the ultimate aim of modern biology is to explain all biology in terms of physics and chemistry. In the end, it is true that we have the experience of wonder. But if you're a consistent atheist, the sad, the sad reality is all that is, is chemicals. That doesn't mean you don't have the experience... It just means the significance of it is entirely devalued. It's no more significant than the involuntary movement of a dead frog's leg. It's just physics, is all it is. But the world itself is extraordinary. Now, sometimes people like Richard, um, uh, Richard Dawkins and um, like a Professor Krauss, who we had out here for some debates a year or so ago, we brought this expensive atheist out to try and make sure we had a fair debate between a Christian atheists. Couldn't get an Australian who was up to the task, so we flew this character out here. And he went on, to, on Q&A, and uh, he had, they got, thankfully, to, to their credit, the ABC got an intelligent Christian on, which is always a relief, and they had this debate. And there's this, what Krauss is saying, Krauss is the guy on the right, and Krauss was, was saying, you know, your petty little God and, you know, Jesus and Palestine and that, we've got this vast, magnificence of science, etc. And what John Dixon explained, and this was sort of put up on a few Facebook things, he said, no, 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 he said, we get all the science and Jesus. like someone saying, we've got painting, not your rubbish poetry. I mean, no, 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 you can enjoy painting and poetry. You can enjoy the Rolling Stones and Beethoven. This ridiculous thing of you can only experience the wonder of science uh, or God, it's logically, obviously false. Although that's an interesting argument point. But John Dixon, famous guy, I think one of his great moments, he said, yeah, yeah, we get all that, we honour that, we admire it, we, we fund it, we, we invented it, Western science. 
but Jesus as well. Another area of wonder. So let's get to Christmas. Um, Christmas is a time of possible wonder. Because babies aren't that significant in a sense. Uh, if you've got a baby, you'll probably deny that. But frankly, as I looked up according to a very good site on the web today, by 12.09 this afternoon, already 190,059 babies have been born today. A lot of babies. It's pretty ordinary, isn't it? That's more time than I've crossed the road, I think. Right? So why does Christianity think that the world should stop and rejoice and eat and drink themselves sick for Christmas? Why? It's not because it's a baby being born, but it's because of who the baby is. And Christians kind of got to that backwards. Um, because the way that Jesus lived as an adult kept on making both his friends and his enemies say, Who are you? People don't look at me and say that. I've seen that once on Superman, in the Superman movie, where he rescues Lois Lane, who's falling out of a helicopter really early on, and he comes flying, she's dying, she's just falling to her death. And he comes flying up and catches her, surprisingly without breaking any ribs. I'm not sure how he did that in terms of physics. I thought he should have smashed her ribs. He was coming up so fast. But anyhow, it's Hollywood, so... He catches her and he's flying her to safety and she looks at him and asks the question people ask Jesus. Who are you? Because there are things Jesus says and does that just are... Even at his trial that was the question. Who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Is that who you are? Yes. You're dead then. It was too shocking. He calms the storm and his friends say to him, Who is this man? And then you go back to the birth of Jesus and, and there's this weird thing where three of the leading scholars of the time have travelled a long way. They see the baby Jesus in the arms of his mother and you know, they do something very unusual. It says, they got on their knees and worshipped him. Now I got three, I had three babies. They all looked a bit like the magic pudding when they were born. They, were, they got substantially better looking as they, as they grew up. But, and I loved them pretty dearly when they were born. They were pretty amazing. And I think babies, they just blow me up. They're little, I think the part I like about them is their little fingers and little fingernails. It's just, and they work. It's amazing. Uh, small things are amazing. And, but I was never tempted to worship them, to get down on my knees and worship them. Right? But these three great scholars from the great empire of Babylon, they worshipped the baby because they had some inkling of who he was. And you heard it read for us there. Uh, in the second reading there from John's Gospel and Eyewitness account speaking out this character called the Word who was there from the very beginning right before the Big Bang in the beginning was the Word the Word was with God right from the very beginning when the whole thing started and the Word was God this is one of Jesus' titles verse 3 all things came into being through him all things all septillion stars are made by Jesus the woolly bear caterpillar designed by Jesus and all those freakish little organs that make those freakish little chemicals that all come out at the right time, all designed by the Word. All things were made through him. And just in case you don't get it, it says it negatively, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's very strong. It's saying you, it's all come from this Word who was with God from the very beginning. And then in verse 14, the shocking statement about Christmas, the word, that is this one through whom all things were made, the word became flesh 
And as we've shared here in other times, it's the lowest word they've found for talking about being human. It's the word that stresses the skin, the fat, the sweat, the, the blood, the tendons, all the moistness of being human. God, the creator, became this. And it is unspeakably wonderful. The universe itself is wonderful. But the God who made it, designed it, built its vastness, is clearly, by definition, much bigger. And he became... Now, my Islamic friends get quite angry at this sometimes. Because they say, no, God is great! You mustn't have small... You can't become, as one of them said to me, born from between the legs of a woman. And, and, and they're onto something, aren't they? they, they they've got the sense of... But I've, I said, no, no, God is not great like some big stumbo who can't... Oh, I didn't mean to crush you. Sorry there, small thing. But I'm so big, I can only be big. You know, the Bible says, of course that's true. God is the transcendent other, the big one, the maker of all things. But he is so wonderful that he can, when he chooses to engage himself into nanotechnology and become an embryo. God is not just... It's like Christians don't go around saying God is great, God is great. We're much more on the God is gracious. It assumes the great, but he is good and gracious and he can stoop down and humble himself and become one with us. That is what he's done. Imagine if I could put the power of a cyclone into this. You know, in a a decent cyclone, according to a Scientific America article, there's the power of 10,000 nuclear weapons in one cyclone. Imagine if you could put all that into that. That would be a pretty exciting little jar, wouldn't it? To see that. We've only got 17,000 nuclear weapons on the whole planet, so you have two cyclones, that's all of them gone. But when you see Jesus, it's kind of like putting a cyclone into a jar. Only it's actually much bigger, much smaller. This is the background to why Jesus could do things that no one else has even claimed to be able to do. To calm the storm at a word to raise a four-day dead person, to raise a two-day dead person, to raise a one-day dead person, to raise himself because of who he is. That's why we celebrate Christmas, friends. That's why it's such a big deal. Well, I need to get to the end so we've got some time for questions. Um, So what? Um, The universe is wonderful. You're wonderful. Music is wonderful. Food is wonderful. The woolly bear caterpillar is wonderful. But so what? Well, let's skip to this building here. Not that one. This one. That building. I came home once, um, one Sunday night, and I was tired, and I flicked on the television, you know, the idiot box, and I'm watching it. And there's a BBC program about architecture. This is some years ago. This building came on. Hagia Sophia. It was a Christian church built in what was then Constantinople. It's now Istanbul in Turkey. You can visit it. Some of you, I'm sure, have this guy was doing a program on great architecture from around the world. Didn't seem to be particularly Christian. But he said, I went to this building, he said, he said, I think this is the finest building ever built. Didn't originally have those things on the side. They were when the Muslims conquered and turned into a mosque. Um, but, and he said, here's why I think it's the finest building ever made. Because it says exactly what it's trying to say. He said, this building, he said, encapsulates the very heart of Christian theology and thought. He's got my attention. I'm always interested to hear what a BBC highly educated architect interest, you know, expert says to the world about the centre of Christianity. He said, when you go into Hagia Sophia, you'll feel two things. Now, when I got the blessing going, I'm not sure if I felt it. 
uh, or not, but he thought you did. But he said, the centre of Christian thought, he said, here's what you'll feel. You'll feel that you are very, very small, but you're not insignificant. And I thought, oh, well, that's not bad. That's not bad. In the Western world, we need to hear you're much smaller than you think you are. You're very small in the universe, but you're not insignificant. If you're a consistent atheist, and most of them aren't, in my experience, all that, Richard Dawkins is not a consistent atheist, etc. You finish up with, with us just being infinitesimally insignificant, and all we are is chemicals anyhow. And we have emotions, but they're of no consequence. You have dreams and hopes. You've been hurt badly. You've been betrayed. doesn't matter. It's all just chemicals in the end. But what Christianity is saying is the world is vast and you're very small beside a very big God, but he really does care. And he comes down, shrinks himself, as it were, nanotechnology, to be one of us so we can see what he's like. And so in the end, he can die for us so that we can rejoice in him and enjoy the wonder, not just of the vastness, but the wonder of his love for us and have it well-rooted in historical realities. I'll stop there so we've got some time for questions. Thank you, Ian. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, you can feel free just to put up your hand or if you've scribbled something out on bits of paper, uh, Tor will collect those. Or if you want to send an SMS, I don't actually have any SMSs yet, so if you'd like to send one or just use one of those other means. Whilst you're just thinking a little bit uh, for a moment, um, last week we did this, but as it's our last meeting, if we don't have your up-to-date email address, that'd be really great just to fill this in. Not all of you received this in your program as you came in, so if you'd want one, tour, uh, you could just hand them out. If you just put your hand up, grab it, or one at the door because it is our last meeting of the year. There will be changes next year, uh, so it would be great to be able to inform you what's happening. So make sure you fill that in, at least with your email address. Okay, would anyone like to raise their hand, question, anything Ian said? Um, i got some more stuff I can say. The questions would be much more fun. Yeah, they would be. Yeah, well, we've got people. Well, you're about simultaneous, but go, Bill. Sure, okay. Uh, that's, that's a helpful correction. The, the, the first question was, 
When you open up the first page of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, you might remember NASA was almost taken to court because when the guys on Apollo 8 saw the first moon rise, when they went around the back of the moon and came back and they saw the, so the first earth rise, the naughty astronauts dared to read from Genesis 1 because uh, the great bulk of those astronauts were very devout Christian men, uh, two of the three on the first on Apollo 11, etc., etc., and they read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the American Atheist Association was, took one take NASA to court because, you know, you're not allowed supposed to have religious stuff in government-funded stuff. In the end, they dropped the case wisely. Genesis 1 says God made everything, which is very unusual in terms of... In fact, there's nothing quite like it. People, I up until recently, thought, oh, all religions say God made everything in the beginning, just different gods. That's not true at all, historically. God made everything in a moment, not unlike, um, yeah, not unlike the Big Bang model that God made all things. And then he shapes it. I think what the Bible is saying is, because it keeps saying, God said this, God said this, God said this. And it's actually saying Jesus is God's word through whom he makes everything. My understanding, if you like, is that Genesis 1 gives us the big picture, God made everything. Um, in John 1, where Jesus described as the word of God through whom God made everything, it's kind of like God's the architect, if you like, and the son is the builder. And uh, they built this show together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God. Um, I did say three wise men. I heard myself say it. Um, technically, we don't know how many wise men there were. There were three gifts given. So this assumption is some, you know, that they didn't chip in together or they didn't uh, splurge, and there might have only been two wise men. It isn't the plural. And you know, just by the way... A friend of mine just written a novel based on a historical reality. The astronomer general, although he had a name in Chinese, in the emperor's court in China went missing for about a year and a half at about 4 or 5 BC. Now we know that from the Chinese papers, we have no idea why. My friend has written this novel on the basis that one of the wise men was the astronomer general. He certainly is from the east, about as far east as you get, from, um, apart from Japan, I guess. So, yes. You, you. So we, you, yeah. you mean, sorry, Scott, was Yeah. yeah. And be quick. Be quick. Um, I understand there's an extraordinary number of uh, scientists who, uh, who use their, or who attribute their faith in part, not just to their research, but to what they see in wonder and God. Yes. How, how, Dawkins, how does Dawkins argue against that? All right. The question was, there seem to be a lot of scientists who, who actually explain their, their faith in God, some Christian, some just believing in some intelligent um, being behind it all, uh, to their discoveries in science. Uh, yes, I've met a number who were moved from atheism to belief in God by their study of the science. Dawkins tends to ignore that or just to dismiss them. So he very interesting interaction he has with Stephen Jay Gould, who is the other great biologist, uh, from Harvard University. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, himself an atheist, but just says, my atheism has nothing to do with science. I look at the scientific community and amongst the most brilliant scientists are people who are atheists, people who are believers, people who are um, agnostics. He said, it's got nothing to do with science. They're, they're, they may use science as their excuse, but there are quite a few, particularly in the areas of astronomy and, and theoretical physics. Biologists tend not to be, and I think that's because, because I've known quite a few students who've studied at Sydney Uni Biology, biology, the way it's set up, is fairly hostile to the idea of God. So it's not an area where Christians find it easy to work, although there are some very eminent ones. 
but astronomy and physics is um, more, more neutral, so Christians have often felt happier. But certainly a number of atheists have moved because of... Paul Davies is one of the interesting guys, himself not a Christian, but it's quite clear, and he writes in um, The Mind of God and The Goldilocks Syndrome, I think it's called, but there's some genius behind this. Yes, the last question? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I'm being I'm being rightly picked up on a, on on a side. Um, the wise men we know come from the east. They're called the Magi, and the Magi were the um, philosopher professors. Basically, in those days, you could kind of know everything. Um, that was known in the scholar, and they were, they were these. They, they were from Mesopotamia, Babylon, then Persia. They were the teachers of kings, uh, so that they, they probably came from that area, which is still called, you know. The, so I've, I've called it Babylon, that region. Um, and the significance of that is that these are not Jews. They're not people who believe in the one God. But right at the beginning of the life of Jesus comes what happens at the end of Jesus, where the message goes to all humankind. This is not a peculiarly Jewish thing. It is very Jewish. But God calls the Jewish people out so that in the end he can make them a blessing to all the nations through the most famous of all Jews, which is Jesus. And so they're from Mesopotamia, almost certainly. My friends, I'd love it if it was right about the guy coming from China. Um, but Magi is the word used for that middle, that middle of the river's professors. Uh, and that, as they say, wise men seek Jesus. Um, sorry, before you despair, there's one I know you've given a lot of thought to. Uh, when is the right time to put up and put down our Christmas decorations? <laughs> Look, I'm writing a book on that. Um, I always put them up too late and take them down too late. So um, Don't follow your example. Yeah, I'll, can I send you a paper on that next year? That would be helpful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.